0: Welcome to WBC Online. My name's Mike. I'm the pastor at Watch It Baptist Church and you're joining us for the first in a new series looking at the book of Ezekiel, a prophecy of Ezekiel, a book found somewhere near the middle of the Old Testament, probably just beyond the middle, actually, uh, and a book that's quite routinely considered to be um, puzzling or strange or confusing or perhaps um, particularly difficult to understand. I'm not claiming to be any particular expert when it comes to Ezekiel. What I am keen to do, though, is to be um, part of a church that is willing to look at everything that the Bible has to offer us. Not to hide from anything or to be put off, but to embrace the chance to understand more of what God is trying to tell us through his um, gift, his revelation of himself, which is the Bible. So we're going to begin not every part in this series is going to be a whole chapter, but we are going to begin by looking at a whole chapter of Ezekiel, and that's chapter one. I'm going to be reading from the NIV, and it goes uh, something like this. In my thirtieth year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day, while I was among the exiles by the Kabar River, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. On the fifth of the month... It was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiakim. The word of the Lord came to Ezekiel, the priest, the son of Buzi, by the Kabar River in the land of the Babylonians. There the hand of the Lord was on him. I looked and I saw a windstorm coming out of the north, an immense cloud with flashing lightning and surrounded by brilliant light. The centre of the fire looked like glowing metal and in the fire, was what looked like four living creatures. In appearance, their form was human, but each of them had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight, their feet were like those of a calf and gleamed like burnished bronze. Under their wings, on their four sides, they had human hands. All four of them had faces and wings, and the wings of one touched the wings of another. Each one went straight ahead. They did not turn as they moved." Their faces looked like this. Each of the four had the face of a human being, and on the right side each had the face of a lion, and on the left the face of an ox. Each also had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces. They each had two wings spreading up outward, each wing touching that of the creature on either side, and each had two other wings covering its body. Each one went straight ahead. Wherever the spirit would go, they would go, without turning as they went. The appearance of the living creatures was like burning coals of fire or like torches. Fire moved back and forth among the creatures. It was bright and lightning flashed out of it. The creatures sped back and forth like flashes of lightning. As I looked at the living creatures, I saw a wheel on the ground beside each creature with its four faces. This was the appearance and structure of the wheels. They sparkled like topaz, and all four looked alike. Each appeared to be made like a wheel intersecting a wheel. As they moved, they would go in any one of the four directions as the creatures faced. The wheels did not change direction as the creatures went. Their rims were high and awesome, and all four rims were full of eyes all around. When the living creatures moved the wheels beside them moved, and when the living creatures rose from the ground, the wheels also rose. Wherever the spirit would go, they would go and the wheels would rise along with them because the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. When the creatures moved, they also moved. When the creatures stood still, they also stood still. And when the creatures rose from the ground, the wheels rose along with them because the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. Spread out above the heads of the living creatures was what looked something like a vault, sparkling like crystal, and awesome. Under the vault, their wings were stretched out one toward the other, and each had two wings covering its body. When the creatures moved, I heard the sound of their wings, like the roar of rushing waters, like the voice of the Almighty, like the tumult of an army. When they stood still, they lowered their wings. Then there came a voice from above the vault over their heads as they stood with lowered wings. Above the vault over their heads was what looked like a throne of lapis lazuli. And high above on the throne was a figure like that of a man. I saw that from what appeared to be his waist up, he looked like glowing metal, as if full of fire. And that from there down, he looked like fire and brilliant light surrounded him. Like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the radiance around him. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. When I saw it, I fell face down and I heard the voice of one speaking. Before we go any further, let's pray. Father, we trust ourselves to you. We ask for your care and your wisdom by your Holy Spirit as we engage with this incredible book, this amazing prophetic work of Ezekiel. We ask that we would be able to see how this points us towards Jesus. And we ask that you would be patient with us, but also that you would inspire us, and that we might be ready to be challenged and transformed by what you have shown us. Amen. When you read a whole chapter, it can take a little bit of time and that does have an impact on how much space there is now to talk about what we've read. There is an enormous amount to get out of those verses. I'd imagine though that if you're anything like me, your first response to hearing them is to think they're a little bit bonkers, they're a little bit um, all over the place and certainly very strikingly different, kind of um, almost surreal. I think that's a fair enough response. After all, the way in which God is talking uh, through Ezekiel to his people at this point is through pictures and explanations that that work on an illustration level. And to do that, uh, there's a a kind of a meaning to a lot of that uh, stuff that isn't necessarily immediately obvious or at least wasn't to me and, and maybe not to you either. We are going to have a little look at what some of those things are telling us in a bit. But first of all, I wanted us to have a little look at context. I know I've said before and we will probably say many times more that context is really important when we're looking at the Bible and what it's telling us. So there's a really important bit of context to be had about Ezekiel as a person and also about what's happening with the people of God at this point in history. Historical location is really important here and we know this Because one of the things that this book does is really um, fine tune in on dates. You'll have noticed that quite early on, there's a, uh, a reference from the writer to what year we are in in relation to various things. Now, it starts off by saying in the 30th year. And as far as I can tell from the reading I've done, most people think this means the 30th year of Ezekiel's life. Uh, And this is significant because he came from a priestly family and the point at which you start uh, your priestly duties was the 30th year. We also need to have a look at geography. So Ezekiel is currently um, by the Kedar River. Let me have a little quick grab of the text here. Here we go. In my 30th year, in the fourth month on the fifth day. While I was among the exiles by the Kabar River, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. Now, being by the Kabar River makes it sound a little bit like there's this um, wonderful, natural, flowing, uh, sort of big, powerful trade route or something like that. In actual fact, this particular river was a canal and it was a canal designed mostly for irrigation. As far as we know, it probably wasn't actually Uh, by Babylon the city but it was in Babylonia central core Babylonia uh, where the first of the exiles taken by the Babylonians from Judah had settled or had been placed it's probably a better way of putting it. Ezekiel was part of the first forced removal uh, by the Babylonians of people from Judah there was a second uh, some years later and that second removal came as a result of The people of Judah, um, led by their stand in king, rebelling against Babylonia, who were their political masters, if you like. Judah, by that point, was controlled by the Babylonian Empire and had a little go at fighting back and trying to seek its own independence. And it failed to do so. Some of how that's come about is described in the book of Jeremiah. And actually, there are ways in which Jeremiah and Ezekiel do dovetail quite neatly but we're not going to get distracted by that just now so the exiles are by the Kabar river there is some suggestion that might be a place of prayer for them but what's important to recognize is that Ezekiel has been forcibly removed with a, with a bunch of um, sort of senior people royal household type people um, and, uh, and that five years later a whole bunch of extra people come and join them You'll notice it says uh, fifth year, uh, sorry, fifth of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiakim. So um, Jehoiakim was the king that was removed by the Babylonians at the point when Ezekiel went. So this is five years since Ezekiel has left Judah. And it's about the point at which the second forced removal of exiles has happened. So at this point, we have a, a suddenly much bigger Judahite presence uh, in Babylonia settled at this place that they've been put in Uh, it says the word of lord came to ezekiel the priest the son of boozy boozy of course um, might be pronounced wrong could be buzzy or something i'm not brilliant on that kind of thing Um, but this tells us something about ezekiel's um, background he was removed with the first set of exiles so he was from uh, an important enough family or perhaps just because he was part of a priestly family, he was important enough to be taken the first time round. Um, but he would have been educated. He would have understood uh, the law and the covenant. Um, the point at which Ezekiel was growing up was a point when Judah had actually started to embrace the old covenant in some significant ways. It wasn't perhaps as wholehearted as Ezekiel's family might have hoped uh, or or as um, wholehearted as, as perhaps those who were close to the covenant or determined to keep the covenant might have been going for. But there was some reform. And so uh, in Ezekiel's growing up, there was a real commitment uh, to following the law uh, of God. So that tells you something about where Ezekiel comes from, how he's ended up here, where he is. And it also tells you something about the audience he's going to be speaking to. Now, Ezekiel is a long book, one of the longest books of the Old Testament. And it's chock full of um, things that God wants to say to his people while they are in exile. It makes it a particularly important book because um, I think it's the only one written exclusively, um, the, the, the only prophecy that we have access to that was exclusively given during that time of exile. So it's a painful time. In fact, I'd say this is a book written by a man in a kind of traumatic place to a a nation that's in trauma because they've been removed from their home. So it's kind of written by a lost soul, to lost souls, that kind of thing. It's also a book which really challenges the assumptions, the religious assumptions of its time. So it says, um, you thought... That your theology worked like this, particularly when it comes to the sort of sanctity of Jerusalem and the people of Israel. You thought it worked like this, but actually it works like that. And it's a challenge to assumptions that isn't readily heard, as Ezekiel tries to put it across. It's a book that's kind of hardcore. It's um, very vivid in some of its descriptions. It's very practical in some of the things that Ezekiel is asked by God to do in order to demonstrate the messages that God wants to pass on there is some really quite uncomfortable sexual language in places in it as well and it's a story as well of of a people who are lost and they are a long way from where they wanted to be or thought they would be and they are either um, not really able to get their head around why it's all gone wrong or possibly more likely don't really want to admit to themselves that they know where it's all gone wrong I said as well that it's, it's, uh it's heavy heavily dated it's not just at the start here that we have specific dates offered these are important because there are things that God reveals to Ezekiel while they're in Babylonia that are happening in Judah but that there's no way the people in Babylonia could know about so it's important that he wrote down when, things, when he was told things so that when it became clear that those things had happened the people could see that Ezekiel had been speaking for God. Uh, it's also because of that quite heavily signposted so we'll we, we get some clear ideas about um, the years that it covers by uh, those sort of date stamps that Ezekiel puts on. In the round, this is a book about reality Uh, about judgment about the consequences uh, of people's actions not just individuals but of a community or a nation it's uh, about the consequences of rebellion both political and spiritual possibly the political consequences of rebellion or the consequences of political rebellion being some kind of um, allegory for the consequences of spiritual rebellion it belongs with a particular tradition of prophetic speaking and this too is important that something really significant that we need to get our heads around which is that the prophetic word of god isn't primarily about whether god is predicting things through his uh, through his prophets but about the way that the words the voice of the living god speaks into a situation Um, yes, to predict or to warn or to say that something will happen unless something else happens. But particularly, it's about a a right now voice of God saying, this is how I'm going to deal with the situation or this is what the situation you're in means or, or why it's significant. So we're going to be looking at how God speaks and the messages that God is trying to pass on. I we'll just land one last thing, which is that the name Ezekiel means God will strengthen. This is kind of a, a bit of trivia for you. Um, my understanding is that the spelling of Ezekiel's name has the L bit at the end, and that L refers to God. Uh, and so Ezekiel means God will strengthen. Interestingly, if you, if you put the name together in a way that puts the God word at the beginning rather than at the end, um, you get what we translate as Hezekiah which means God gives strength. Interestingly, God did definitely give strength uh, to Hezekiah, um, whose reign was one of um, significant faithfulness uh, in the face of um, political and military struggle. But I think it's Ezekiel's need for God to strengthen him as he shares God's word with the people that is particularly striking. There is going to be ways in which Ezekiel needs God's strength Um, that are particularly acute and challenging. So that gives us a sense of Ezekiel the man. I kind of want to do a a part two then of this talk, which is about um, what I think the first chapter is really getting at. So Ezekiel's call vision that we see in chapter 1 is really very significant indeed it tells his listeners and Ezekiel something really important that they might otherwise just not understand and it does this by means of this incredibly um, colourful illustrative language at the heart of this vision as God has called Ezekiel is this, um, is this picture of a storm and what's going on within the storm and all the movement that takes place in it and what Ezekiel can see. It's important to note, and I know it's towards the end, but it's important to note that right at the end of the passage, so we're at the second half of verse 28, Ezekiel writes, this was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. He doesn't say that he saw the Lord or even that he saw the glory of the Lord. What he says is he saw the likeness or even the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when he saw it, he fell face down and heard the voice of one speaking. So ultimately, it's that verse at the end that tells us what we're looking at, tells us what Ezekiel was seeing. He was seeing the glory of the Lord. But specifically, we see that from um, verses 22 onwards, spread out above the heads of the living creatures was what looked something like a vault. Above the vault uh, was what looked like a throne and high on the throne was the figure like that of a man. And that man is the Lord. So the Almighty is represented by that figure on the throne. This is significant because it is while Ezekiel is there by the Kabar River in Babylonia that he sees the Lord. And we see how the Lord moves and arrives where he is through most of the rest of that um, picture, of that uh, vision. So it says, I looked in verse 4, I looked and I saw a windstorm coming out of the north. The north is important because the north represented two things. Uh, one is where God came from, uh, there was a kind of a common understanding. That that was the case. And the second is that the north was also where invasion came from. If you were in Judah. And that's a very simple reason for that. Which is that if you're in Assyria. Uh, or Babylonia. Or Persia. Then the way to get to. Um, what's now Israel or Palestine. Isn't to go directly west. From Mesopotamia. Because it's an enormous amount of desert. What you do is you go northwest. And then you sort of take a curve around the top. And then come down from the north in order to invade, because otherwise you're trying to cross a desert and you have no way of keeping your uh, your military um, apparatus properly supplied. You need the water that comes from staying by the rivers. So coming out of the north is significant for that reason. Winston coming out of the north, an immense cloud with flashing lightning uh, and brilliant light. The centre looked like glowing metal. And there are four living creatures. And then we have a description of those four living creatures. You'll notice that they have wings uh, and straight legs and four faces. The faces are the face of a human, a lion, an ox and an eagle. Those are um, uh, faces of strength. Um, So we have a, a human, but with all the strength of the natural world represented in it. We also have wings, wings being an indication, as I'm, I'd imagine most of us would have, would have thought straight away, of an angelic being, uh, or at least a being that belongs with or to a god. Now, this isn't something limited to Jewish thinking. It's not uncommon to find this kind of depiction uh, in temples in the Near East, right across the ancient Near East, and generally speaking on the outside as a kind of a guard. Much as if, much in the same way that you see an angel at the end of the um, Genesis narrative, where they talk about the Garden of Eden and the banishment, the exile, if you like, uh, of um, Adam and Eve, you have an angel that then guards the garden, which is where God's presence is. So you have this angelic like being, which is later on referred to as a cherubim, and they have um, two wings spreading out upward each touching the creature on the other side. Um, Each one went straight ahead and they would go where the spirit would go. Uh, They have the appearance of burning coals or fire or torches. And this, this kind of fire in the cloud, fire in the storm thing, is a deliberate echo of the presence of God that went before the people of Israel in, in the Exodus, as they came out of Egypt in the book of Exodus and make their way towards the promised land. So we start seeing how all these little sort of picture bits, these descriptions are representative of one thing or another. And then we get to the wheels. So you've got these angelic creatures and they have um, wheels beside them and these wheels interlock and the wheels don't turn. But because they interlock and crisscross each other, that enables the wheels to travel in any direction. That's the significance of the interlocking wheels. This means that wherever the creatures go, the wheels can carry them. And, and then, of course, the creatures can fly if they need to and the, the wheels go up and stay with them. Notice that the wheels have eyes on or those eyes are an indication of knowledge. So these creatures, living creatures, um, are they know everything. They can see everything or they understand everything. And then these creatures are guarding the throne and the throne is where this um, picture of the Lord is seen. The appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. So in essence, we have an angelic chariot carrying God. It can go anywhere and it has turned up visible with the Jewish people in Babylonia while they are in exile now why is this important well for us particularly coming after Jesus and recognizing what the role of the Holy Spirit is it may seem almost automatic to think of God as someone who is anywhere and everywhere we have whole theologies based around the omnipresence of God however for these judaites the idea of where god is was limited so god had traveled with his people in that pillar of fire or pillar of cloud as they came out of egypt and arrived at the promised land at some later time uh, the presence of god has been identified as being above the ark of the covenant where the ark of the covenant is therefore god is and then later on That um, that ark is moved from, it's taken from being a very mobile thing that would go with the people wherever they went, carried on poles by priests. It went to then be in the temple. So the temple was where God resided. It wasn't limited to it, but that was his home. And this had led to a kind of, it's referred to by some commentators as a Zion theology. The idea was that Mount Zion, which was the, the hill on which Jerusalem was built, Uh, mount zion was somehow um sacredly protected it had a sanctity all of its own you couldn't mess with it god would always protect it and and it would never fall because if it fell then um, then god himself would fall because that's where god was and this had led to a kind of um hubris or, or arrogance i suppose from the people of Israel that they were always safe as long as they were in Jerusalem, or as long as Jerusalem stood, because their home, their their theological home, um, the home of their of their deity, was protected, and so they were protected too. Being removed from their homeland and taken far away from the temple meant they. They no longer recognised in the same way that they were God's people because they weren't in God's place. You can imagine the frustration and sadness and and trauma then of being removed from Judah. And then the fear of the threat to the city. So Ezekiel and this first band of people that have gone know they are removed from Jerusalem and they're fearful for Jerusalem, But they also believe that God won't let Jerusalem fall. When in this vision God turns up, it, what it says to Ezekiel is, I am not limited to Jerusalem. I am not uh, a God who is going to sustain this Zion theology. I'm not a God who is invested in a geography. I'm invested in a people. This is particularly important because God is, as it will become very apparent later, God is very unhappy with his people because they've broken the terms of the agreement by which God has said he will be their God. They have completely disregarded the covenant agreement between them. They have been unfaithful in that marriage contract. So. As this picture of the Almighty comes out of the north, not only is, is it a guarantee that this is, really is God, but it's also a reminder that um, that God is, is invading. So there is a sense of um, something military, something threatening, something scarier, and potentially something scarier than Babylonia, although I'm not sure. That his audience Ezekiel's audience see it that way there's also that challenge to Zion theology but there's also this real sense that that um that God is is powerful and is on the move he will go where he wants to go jesus later on in John 3 talks about how the spirit blows where it wants to and goes where it wants to and, and you know there's no chance that man can shape that or control it. And Ezekiel is told by God that God is present among the people, even while they're in Babylonia. It's worth remembering that one of the results of the time in exile is the development of the synagogue, a place where Jewish people would gather in small community because the temple wasn't available to them. But at this stage, there is this sense of fear and uncertainty. And this vision in in Ezekiel 1 is God saying, I'm here. I I move. I have travelled. I am just as fearsome and awesome and scary as I ever have been. I have not been rooted to Jerusalem. I don't work the way you assume I do. I am here and I have things to say. I think one of the most helpful ways of understanding that is to think of the purpose of an embassy. So legally speaking, where you have an embassy from one country in another, then the ground on which that embassy is built is technically, literally the soil of the home country. So the um, South African embassy in Paris, within its compound, that is South Africa. And you almost get this sense that as As God approaches Ezekiel and starts revealing himself to Ezekiel, that God is saying, this is my embassy. This is where I am. My home is wherever this throne goes. My place is wherever I choose to be. And that is definitively my place. There's also that sense of embassy that's to do with... Hundreds of years ago, if you sent an embassy, you sent a representative. It was a it was a noun not to do with a building, but to do with a um, what am I looking for? like an entourage of people, like a delegation. Um, so ambassador was the lead in an embassy, but it's almost like Ezekiel's being told here: um, you are my embassy, you are my representative, you are my ambassador to my people. What I want them to know. I will tell you to pass on. So we have this distinct and traumatic sense of exile, but we also have this sense of embassy. This is where God is and it's where he intends to make sure he's being heard by his people. I'm going to pray and then we're going to have a look at three questions that come from this passage. Lord Jesus, would you guide us as we think some more about this passage? Would you um, unhook our minds from our assumptions and allow us to to fully know what it is that you're showing us from this passage? Would you make us receptive and eager to hear from you? Amen. OK, question one is this, I want you to draw or if you want to just imagine, uh, draw a scale with um, sort of a number five at one end and a number five at the other. You no, know when you get those surveys and, and they ask you to pick a, a certain place along a scale where you think, uh, where your opinion lands, something like that. And I want you to imagine that at one end of that scale is um, compassion and at the other end is judgment. That scale is there to represent what you think God is like. And although it may seem a little bit oversimplified to do this, I'm going to ask you to, to put somewhere on that scale where you think God is. Is he up the judgment end? Is he down the compassion end? Um, is he somewhere in between? And if so, how far in between? And then once you've done that, to think, why do I think like that? What's, what is it that, that shapes my perspective of what God is like. Question two. It's interesting that Ezekiel starts his ministry when he's 30, and that Jesus, Luke tells us, is about 30 when he starts his ministry. It was a key age, uh, I think I said before, it's the point at which a priest goes from training to actually doing so I want to ask this question what do you think God has done in your life to prepare you for ministry what has God done in your life to prepare you for ministry what skills has he given you what circumstances have you lived through that might help prepare you for ministry and by ministry I mean to represent God to to do the things that Jesus would do to to be Jesus presence in the community what has God done to prepare you for that? Question three. What are the assumptions that you carry about how God works? What are the assumptions in your mind that you just think, well, these are just how God is? We're asking this question mostly because we see we start to see in the way God describes his own presence and later on in the way Ezekiel challenges the people of Israel uh, or Judah more specifically um, we start to see sort of a, a challenge of the assumptions what I referred to earlier earlier as um, Zion theology a kind of theology that's based on a particular place or a temple uh, and its sanctity um, and the way in which those assumptions were challenged and and Therefore, our need to be able to have our assumptions about God challenged too. God clearly comes in in might and, and power and scariness to say, this is how I work, even if it's different from what you thought. And that means it's important for us to think about what our assumptions are so that we're ready for God to challenge them or, or maybe to have other people challenge them and work out whether they really hold water because some of them are going to be important to stick with. And some of them will need to be um, rigorously challenged. So what are your assumptions about God? Well, that's it for our time together this time around. Uh, I do hope that you take the opportunity to have a dip into Ezekiel yourselves. It's not an easy read, but... All of scripture, as Paul tells us, is inspired by God and is useful for us. So Ezekiel doesn't fall outside that definition, even though it took a little while for the Jewish people to accept that it should be part of the Bible. It's there and we trust it. So have a dip in if you can. If you've got questions, ping me an email, ask them uh, or get in touch some other way. I'm happy to talk them through. And I do hope that you stick with us uh, through parts two, three, four and five. I think it's going to be a five part thing um, as we explore a bit more what we can learn from this book. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, thank you for your company. Thank you that while you may challenge us, you will also comfort and guide us. Would you help us to take the promise of your presence into the days ahead? And would you help us to seek out those who will walk with us in your power and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for being with us. Take good care. I'll see you soon.